So who is my neighbor? In my book, my novel, Joseph Comes to Town, Joseph, who is this Jesus-type character, tells the story about the Islamic fundamentalist. And the story is called The Good Islamic Fundamentalist. And it's about uh, an illegal immigrant who's been beaten and robbed on the side of the road and a political operative and a rich developer and his wife and a, a religious leader all pass by and don't help for various reasons. And then the good Islamic fundamentalist stops and helps. And that is my modern day parable version. I love to tell modern day parables. My modern day parable version of the Good Samaritan story where Jesus took the worst people in the culture of the time he lived or those that were considered the worst by the, let me give my air quotes, good people of the culture, the religious people of the culture, and he made them the hero of the story while the, again, air quote, good people were shown to be uncaring and un unempathetic. And, and that's what the story is about, is learning to see people differently. So I'm, the podcast you're about to listen to is from uh, a discussion group. We do these every Tuesday night. If you're listening to this as it's posted on October 15th, next Tuesday we'll be doing uh, an NPE discussion group on should we expect our elected officials to have morals and integrity. Uh, so we've been doing one of these discussions every Tuesday to try to say to Christians, hey, you've been taught poorly in some ways. Who is my neighbor is asking the question, are we supposed to love sinners hate sin? That other words gives us the opportunity to say, well, I love that gay person, but I'm not going to build a relationship with them. And I'm certainly going to vote against anything that could help them have a better life because I need to hate sin. And how does that play into loving our neighbors? And how does realizing who our neighbor is and what that love looks like impact our civic engagement in voting, et cetera, et cetera. I think the answer is broader, that God has more love for people than we know. But I'll let the panel discuss that, and I hope you enjoy it on this version of the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast. This, These discussion groups, by the way, are, are brought to you by the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast, but also our good friends on the Facebook page of Intersecting Faith and Politics, which is a great place if you love to talk faith and politics, and our, our good friends from Vote Common Good that are traveling the country saying, hey, maybe Christians, there's a different way to vote than blind loyalty to Donald Trump, and maybe God doesn't require you to do that. So thank you to Intersecting Faith and Politics and to Vote Common Good. Enjoy this podcast from the Nonpartisan Evangelical at npepodcast.com. <music> For those willing to listen, learn, and have eyes to see and ears to hear, this is the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? Challenging the mindset of right-wing Christianity and encouraging people to have their minds renewed and hearts transformed. What knucklehead, mush for brains, evangelical leaders are trying to, uh, to overthrow Trump. It's a special kind of dumb and calling yourself a Christian. Let's have better conversations about the life modeled in the Bible so we can truly tell the world God is not mad at you. 
This is the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast at npepodcast.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our discussion group tonight for the Nonpartisan Evangelical Intersecting Faith and Politics and Vote Common Good. We love being with you every Tuesday night to talk about the issues that Christians find important in making their election decisions as we head down to November 3rd, which is just around the corner, and maybe give a little bit different look at some of the thoughts on how we make those decisions as Christians engaged in the civic arena. So we have a great panel tonight, and we're going to be talking about the topic, Who is My Neighbor?, and talking about who is my neighbor, and then talking about it from a how does that impact our voting and our, our engagement in, in the, the civic government of our culture. And we have a great panel tonight, and so I want them to introduce themselves. So far, all women. We do have another panelist coming on who's just running a little bit late with some technical difficulties. But hi, ladies, and we're going to go around the horn and have each of you introduce yourself, tell who you are, and why you've joined us on this panel tonight. So, Charity, let's start with you. I am Charity D'Amico. I live in Wisconsin, and I just think that knowing who our neighbors are and how we engage with people around us is really important. It's one of the things that we try and teach our kids, and so I thought, hey, it'd be a great thing to discuss, so I'm here tonight. Awesome. Glad to have you, and Kate, you next. Oh, hi. I'm Kate Davis. I live in Ohio. I I'm a, well, I guess I'm a PhD candidate in religion and gender, and I love diving into topics like this. We were talking about how religion intersects with everyday life, like what our religion means to us when we are at the grocery store, when we are out and about in the world, and how we live that. And so I'm really excited about this topic. Awesome. Glad to have you with us tonight. And Cindy, how about you? Hi, I'm Cindy Hawthorne. I'm from the Detroit, Michigan area. I guess I joined this group because I feel very strongly about this topic because I've been in Christian circles my entire life. Like from the time I was born in a Baptist church, pretty much, and raised in a Christian school, Christian college. I was a teacher in a Christian school, and I love my Christian culture. I love it so much. Wonderful people. And, and I just feel like there are some things that maybe we can learn from each other. And I just, I want to be, hopefully help Christian people to understand exactly what this topic means, because as much as I love this culture, I feel like this is a little area that maybe we can do better in. Awesome. Thank you for that. And my name is Paul, and I run the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast, moderate these discussions. And I'm intrigued that you guys are all Midwesterners Mm -hmm. from three states that are absolutely (laughs) vital in this election. And so do you guys feel the pressure that the rest of us are like, come on, Michigan, come on, Ohio, come on, Wisconsin? Being a transplant, right? Like I come from California, which is not a swing state in anyone's mind. And so no one really cares in California. No one's trying to really win your vote. And then in Ohio, it's suddenly there are, I live in a tiny town and it's politicians come through this year, but like, years and there's every other ad is a political ad it's a totally different stressful thing yeah it's i think i've gotten no, go five calls uh today about if i voted or not i said i already voted yep me too don't have to worry we about me a few days ago. 
Yeah. <laughs> and Sorry. let's use this as an opportunity to encourage everybody to get out to vote. I did drop my ballot last night and the earlier and the and maybe just taking it and dropping it at your county elections office just to make sure is a great way mm-hmm. to go. So Alex has joined us now. So Alex, introduce yourself. Tell us where you're from and what brought you to want to be a part of this panel tonight. I am from the very blue state of California. The elections... <laughs> Already it, determined out here. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> the, the only visits we get from candidates out here is for fundraisers, and that's it. <laughs> Pretty much. So, anyways, and I'm right at the capital, Sacramento. Very strategic, of course. It's a large area, of course, but it's not the largest in California, but still, it's the most strategic because all the decisions happen up here. And it's just so interesting because I pastor a church, uh, a bilingual church, Spanish uh, and English. And uh, it's interesting because we started our church as a Spanish-speaking church, but through the message that we preach and uh, what we stand for, we just became so much more multicultural, where now we have sprinkled in our English speakers from white folks, brown folks, black folks, Asians. We have different ones, and uh, it's really cool to see that diversity, but even more because of where we stand right now. And I think even more so since the elections, the last elections, I think a lot of things were becoming more clear and defined for people and having to exit certain organizations to join others that are more like-minded. And that's where we're at right now. And being, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. Thanks for introducing yourself, Ben. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. But uh, I do want to say to everybody on Facebook, we love to have you involved in the conversation. So give us your comments. We have Lauren behind the scenes doing all the work for us. And if you have a question that you would like uh, to pose to the panel, put it in there and, and some of them Lauren will put up for us and we'll jump into those as well. But let me set up the premise for tonight. And again, thank our sponsors, the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast, uh, the Intersecting Faith and Politics Facebook page, which is a great place if you like to talk faith and politics. And our friends from Vote Common Good, we appreciate you supporting us tonight. And and so the premise is this. In Luke chapter 10, uh, a a religious man comes to Jesus and says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And, And Jesus says, basically, love God and love your neighbor. And then the man being sly and wanting to build a justification for himself says, and define neighbor. Who exactly am I responsible to love? Surely there are people out there I'm not supposed to love. And Jesus told this parable that we now know as the parable of the Good Samaritan, where the hated people of the culture, the Samaritans, were then the hero of the stories, while the religious guys and the good people of culture were the ones that said, That's not a person worthy of my attention. And so we like to look at that and say, okay, in my civic engagement as an American, and particularly maybe as an American Christian or an American evangelical, who is my neighbor? Who am I responsible for? And I think there's varying degrees of discussion in that. And so, Charity, let's start with you. So who is our neighbor? In the context of that story for Jesus, it was the the worst people in their culture were the people they were responsible for. Who is our neighbor today for us as American Christians in today's culture? I think everybody on this panel can agree that every human being on this earth is your neighbor. That's just a general statement. But I think in the story, the Samaritan would be the outcast of the church. You would see possibly 
our uh, LGBTQ plus all those people, then you would see the pregnant teenage girl after, or she's not pregnant anymore, so she has a baby. Any of those people that you would normally want, say, you should reach out to them, they're hurting, or it's sad to say, but it's just anybody who's different than the people, the Christians in the church. But um, those guys are sinners. We don't have to, <laughs> we don't have to worry about them. Obviously, in this story, if, we, if everybody read it and um, actually took it to heart, you would see that didn't matter. And, and even throughout Christ, throughout the time that we see in the Bible of his ministry, he didn't care who he touched or who, like, he was just like, there's this person that's hurting and I'm going to help them. And so I think if we actually took this story and we said, what did Christ, what did he do in his ministry? And actually, yeah, he's not just telling a story here. It's he acted it out in the way that he treated everybody around him from the little annoying children that came up and tried to interrupt him and like to talk to him. All the disciples were like, no, those are children. You don't need to worry about them, Jesus. And he was like, no, let them come in here. So I think if you, if we actually, if the church actually looked at this and said, here's one story that everybody knows a story, but also how does it, how did he apply it to how he treated everybody around him? You'd find that his, that the neighbor is everybody who's hurting anybody that's hurting. Uh, And who wants to jump in on that? Sometimes I think we lose the emotional triggers of the story of the Bible. Jesus obviously told this story to hit a trigger button of his audience. The the Samaritans held a particular meaning to his Jewish audience. Who were the Samaritans and why was that a trigger button? Anybody want to jump in on that? I'll comment on that. Okay, Um, Cindy. The, the Samaritans were hated because of who they were. They were hated because they weren't pure, pure Jews. The, the Jewish people considered themselves superior. They referred to Gentiles as dogs. And anybody that wasn't Jewish was looked down upon both racially, socially, and religiously in all, in all those ways. And if you were a Samaritan, you were only half Jew, which meant someone in your family line didn't marry a Jew. And that was already trouble. And so you were looked down in every way, religiously, socially, Racially, everything about you was considered less than. And I think Jesus specifically chose a Samaritan to be the good guy in the story because he was trying to show this lawyer, this Jewish lawyer, you're not better because of who you are. Like you being a Jew doesn't make you better. You being a lawyer doesn't make you better. What makes what makes you more Christ-like is the way you treat other people. Mm-hmm. Not who you are, not not what credentials you have. Credentials were very respected in that culture. Oh, I'm a Pharisee. Oh, I'm this. I have this label. I have this title. Samaritan didn't have a title. So I think it was just trying to show them it's not who you are. It's not your label. It's not your title that makes you like Christ. It's the way you treat other people. And it's good. That. Not, you don't have to be a certain person to do that. Yeah. And so Charity talked about LGBTQ plus IA, uh, all of the letters there, or the pregnant woman, the unmarried pregnant woman, maybe. Who else would we see as Samaritans uh, today in today's culture? Kate, who would you see? Oh, man. So I think in addition to those categories, I I think of who the church tends to, the the mainstream church tends to pass by. So I think sometimes this is racial. Like we know there's a racism problem in mainstream evangelicalism. Like I hope that's not a controversial statement, but maybe it is. So I think- I would specialize in that here. So feel free, go for it. So I think- 
we have to look at this as a racial issue. Like why are so many evangelical churches segregated? Not officially, but like officially. <laughs> why do certain a certain class of evangelical people walk by a homeless person on the street and immediately think junkie rather than, oh, neighbor. <laughs> so I think Charity hit the nail on the head. The people who are generally unwelcome in nicer churches. So whether that is openly queer people, whether that is racially diverse people, gender non-conforming people, homeless people, like why are certain classes of people excluded from these spaces? Yeah, and I think it's important to say we're not denigrating any of these groups. We're talking about groups that the church would look down upon. And Alex, I know you do a lot of work with immigrants and some you know, illegal immigrants, we might call them, or certainly that's what they're called in the culture. Where would you see them to fit in the Good Samaritan story as, a, as an example for Christians and how to interrelate with people? I think first and foremost, when you were talking about what was Christ trying to do there when he brought up this story, the Lord was always about tearing down mindsets. And one of the mindsets was the prejudices they had toward what Kate was talking about, toward the Samaritans. And so they looked at them, not, it's, they demonized them right off the bat just because of what they were. So Jesus turns around and doesn't make him look like the helpless person that needs saving. He's actually the hero, the strong one, the one that's generous, the one that's compassionate, the one that's loving, caring. So he's flipping the entire script. The narrative is counter narrative to what they're thinking. And when we look at it, for instance, he humanized him in such a way that he's tearing down these demonizing mindsets that they had already toward Samaritans. And so we look at it in our context, the people we tend to demonize, especially the church, the evangelical church tends to demonize these people. When, it, when, when we talk about, for instance, in this case, immigrants, they came here to do bad things. You know, what, what 45 said, they're, they're rapists, they're criminals, they're, which if you look at the Samaritan, maybe that was back in the day, the mindset that they had against the Samaritans. Yet then Christ comes and says, but to look at what, he, what kind of person he is, look at what he did. As a hero, and, and when we humanize, when we look at that with the immigrant, with the LGBTQ community, with you begin to see people and the compassion that they have, the image of God in there, the love, the compassion. So it's to tear down these prejudices. And he, it, it, the story never there, and this is another thing I, I don't want to get into too much theologically, but just real quick uh, the story there never encompassed did he, was he obedient to the law? Did he actually serve the same Jehovah? Uh, none of that. It was like, but here's the hero. And that was, it could have been an idolatrous person, according to the Jews, for the God that right. he served. So it's, if the Lord is saying, hey, the hero, the story is a Muslim. I think that's a really <laughs> important point, Alex, because the, the Jews felt justified to hate the Samaritans. Mm-hmm. They, the, right. the Samaritans had stolen their land when they were taken into, or they felt their land had been stolen by the mm-hmm. Samaritans and their religion perverted. So like Jonah with the Ninevites, they felt justified in this hatred. They, in fact, they, mm-hmm. and so would this not then represent 
like a lot of people tell me now, do you know that Black Lives Matter stands against the traditional family? So mm-hmm. would where would a, where would BLM fit into the Good Samaritan story? Anybody want to touch that one? <laughs> yeah. if, if I could just comment on that and generally tagging off what Alex was talking about, this idea of demonizing people. My husband and I teach a class, we call it Stepping Stones, is to help people overcome struggles and addictions and things like that. And, and one thing that we make such an issue of saying in our class, we try to say it all the time, is we do not believe in labeling people by one aspect of what they may do. Just to give you some examples, if a woman is a prostitute, we tend to say she's a prostitute. No, that's not, that's not what she is. It's something she does. It's one thing that she does. She is also someone's daughter. She is someone's niece. She is a cousin. She's a woman. She is made in the image of God. She may be an artist. She may be a musician. She's a, she's a lot of things. Prostitute's not the only thing she is. That's just what she does. And she shouldn't do that. That's not a good thing, but she probably fell into it for a reason that none of us would want to experience. I, so when we label people by one thing, he's a liberal or they're a prostitute, or they're an addict. So we, I can't stand it when people are called addicts. No person is an addict. They're a person and they have a struggle with an addiction. That's not the same thing. And I think a lot of our prejudices come from categorizing people, putting them in this box based on one thing we know about them, instead of getting to know them as a multidimensional person who is made in the image of God. And and like Alex said, we demonize people because we know one thing about them. Oh, you see somebody with a Black Lives Matter shirt, like you said, and you assume, oh, you must be a Marxist. No, they wear that t-shirt doesn't make them a Marxist. Find out what they believe. Ask them what they think. Just assume that all these things about them because of one detail that you may know about that's good they're they're in god's image and that's the most important thing if we can label somebody and dehumanize them then we can Mm -hmm. disregard them or disregard disregard their input alex go ahead yeah no i was gonna say and he's a democrat right Mm -hmm. off the bat (laughs) (laughs) i've been in circles where christians have said i don't know how people can be christians and be democrats and i'm like What about the other way around? Anyways, (laughs) (laughs) we have Tom commenting on Facebook. He says to some conservative evangelicals, the Samaritan would be the liberal progressive, the mainline denominational person, somebody from some other denomination or the BLM T-shirt wearer. Yeah, of course. And Kate, like I said, Jonah felt justified in hating the Ninevites, and they may even have killed somebody from his family in a war somewhere along the way. So how does God want us to respond to, say, a a terrorist or somebody from a Middle Eastern nation that that are enemies of the United States? And when we talk about who is my neighbor, what is the requirement of a Christian in in that interrelationship? And I guess I'm, I'm just coming in with all my hot takes today, because for me, fundamentally, I, I can't, reconcile this story particularly i love the gospel of luke it's my favorite gospel if we're allowed to have favorites i certainly do um (laughs) and i think fundamentally there is no way to exclude like charity was saying like everyone in the world is our neighbor and so it for me i don't find any sort of justification for hatred of anyone (laughs) for actions they committed or someone else committed. I don't like, I don't believe in just war theory coming out strong here saying, I think we are responsible for loving all people as if they were the person we grew up living next to for 20 years and have known our entire lives. I don't think we 
can draw a distinction between groups of people in that way. So, of course, what somebody's going to say in response to that is, is what, what if somebody attacks your family? And is somebody attacking my country, not attacking my family? Huh? What do we answer to that? Again, I fundamentally disagree that, one, America, this gets into a, issues of extending Christianity to America. And is America fundamentally a Christian enterprise, which I say no. And I think attacking there's always this idea, right? If they hit me, can I hit them back? What does Jesus say about that? <laughs> he says, if they strike you on one cheek, offer them the other one. If we purport to follow the example of Christ, how can we justify that hatred? I just, I, I don't think we can. Anybody else have a thought on that, Charity? Were you going to jump in? Yeah, I was. So I was trying to prepare a little bit more than I did in my last live. I was looking and I found this quote about from Thomas Merton, and he was a monk. Um, and it was, our job is to love others without stopping to inquire whether or not they are worthy. And I think that applies to even our enemy. Are we supposed to react to how they're treating us, how they're treating the nation, how they're voting or are we supposed to first see them as a human and love them? And how does that love, what would that love look like? And I was exploring that and thinking about that. And one of the things that I love about my parents is how they taught me to love other people. We loved, we would invite people over to our house all the time. People that and some other person might not feel safe around <laughs> inviting them into our house. We did have a woman who struggled with addiction that lived in our home. She slept in the same room as me and my sibling. Like we just always had that example of love in our lives. And I know a lot of people don't have that, but I would say loving people first and providing for them, even if they're voting opposite you, even if they won't let their kids play with your kids, even in all those situations, First, loving them in their need. And if they accept that and you have opportunities to do more, then that's great. If not, first you did your job. Yeah. And, and I think maybe a, an important aspect of this is not only were the Samaritans seen as unworthy of love by the Jews, but actually the guy beaten up on the side of the road they would have considered that he must have done something That's wrong something, for God yeah. allow that to happen to him. Like, so if the robber robbers beat up the guy, they would consider you, you must have angered God somehow. So it, it's not, we, most of us might say, of course I'd stop and help somebody on the side of the road. But again, the challenge of this is Jesus is saying that person that you don't think worthy of God's mercy that's who you have to love to, to really prove. And yeah. So I think Kate, that's a little bit of the point you're making and it, Maybe it puts to bed a little bit of our love the sinner, hate the sin type of approach we have to people. Which, I mean, isn't really a biblical, like, there, yeah, again, we're good not to get too much into theology here, but like, that's not. Theology's great. Let's go for it. Yeah. That's not really a, there isn't a verse that says love sinners except, or love, there's not. There's no love the love everybody except gay people or yeah okay 
love the sinner, hate the sin is I think a, a weaselly way to make it easier on ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. Like, because loving people is hard. It's hard sometimes. I'm a very opinionated person, as you guys have noticed. <laughs> I struggle with this. I'll, I'll give an example. I live in a tiny small town in Ohio. My neighbor across the street, my literal neighbor, has very different political views than I do. He hung up a huge flag for a political candidate I do not support. And I've been struggling with how to respond to this sort of every day I walk out to my car and I see this flag and I just go, and I get really mad. And so how, as a neighbor, do I exclude them when I make my yearly Christmas baskets? Do I, you know, what is my response here? Mm -hmm. And my response was to passive aggressively put up a poster for a candidate that I like. Something probably I would do. And Alex, I want to pull you in on this a little bit too, in, in that one of the things we hear from Christians and, and you've been down on the border working with immigrants who have been put in cages and, and treated very poorly. And, and this idea that if we treat these people poorly, those people poorly, they won't come back or more won't come. And I've, and so we hear Christians say, but they wouldn't break the law. We wouldn't right. mistreat them and they're breaking the law by coming here. So how, how do you respond to that Christian viewpoint on immigrants? Uh, I think, again, when we begin to understand compassionately, hear the stories, learn from what's really happening from the people themselves, and we stop judging, we stop being prejudiced about things and believing everything we hear, too, and really investigating things. And that was one of the things, one of the reasons why when the caravan was coming up, I think it was, what, two years ago, two and a half years ago, almost three now. First thing I said was, I got to go down there. I got to go down there. I got to see it for myself because I do not believe the narrative that I'm hearing from this scary caravan that has all these MS-13 gangsters and they're going to come and invade our land and these invaders. I went down with an organization that we've partnered with and we went into one of their shelters with five, 5,000 basically refugees, all in tents, 5,000 people of course, pre-pandemic. So everybody was squished into one small area, 5,000 people. Yet when you encountered them, they're mostly families. And the majority of them were really, or I could say half of them were really 18 and younger kids that were lined up. I literally was in tears when I went into this, this camp. It was interesting because immediately 40 people surrounded us, just came up to us, greeted us, we're happy to see us, receive, we're inviting us to their tents just so that they can serve us. One of them was even offering prayer for us. And, it, it, and they were telling us their stories and how they came. And, and there was one 15-year-old kid that did not leave my side the entire time we went all the way around. And he kept on talking to me and I, we were talking. Talk. So, of course, when I was about to leave, it was like all we could do is just I embraced this kid and I cried. All I did was cry. He cried there. We held each other. I would probably never see him. I would never see him. I don't know what happened to him. Never seen him again. But here were these invaders. Here were these MS-13 dangerous people, where, which they weren't at all. They were, not, they were people that when they came, all, what would move them to leave their homes, 
trek all the way through, especially Central America, trek through Mexico, risking their lives to come and encounter what they encountered, being turned away, being separated from their families, kids put in cages. And why would they risk that? You got to ask yourself that question because they wanted to break the law. No, because they were in survival mode. All they could think of is this is my only hope. And us as supposedly the Christian nation, how are we supposed to respond to them with compassion, with love, taking them in, understanding their plight? But no, we got to turn them away. No, we got to do zero tolerance policies. So that'll teach them a lesson. And honestly, that's not going to stop anything because people are in desperate need and people need help. That's the bottom line. And not only those that are coming in, we know what's going on in our own nation, too. And the attorney general of the United States used the Bible to justify that. Very misquoted it completely out of context and everything. So it's sad to say to see that because there are so many unjust laws that we have in our land. And Mm. one of the most horrible unjust laws and systems that we have amongst many is our immigrant system or immigration system that totally needs a reform. And I, I think that just speaks to our heart. I think Jesus was really talking about a heart posture here. Let me get to a couple of comments on Facebook. James says the Christian view of neighbor as told in the Good Samaritan is unique. He says one of my Muslim friends had talked about neighbor being a certain number of blocks away, but Jesus was revolutionary with Mm -hmm. uh, his view of neighbor here. And Tom says, I love the sinner, hate the sin of socialism, Democrats, Planned Parenthood, illegal immigrants, etc. And then Reina says, hatred doesn't, really doesn't serve any purpose besides alienating some good people of faith, saying he's Hindu born, raised in India, witnessed Islamic terrorism. Having said that, if I hate that religion, I may alienate good Muslims away from relationship. And that's his two cents. One of the things that jumped up. So where do masks? How about masks in a pandemic? Where does that come in with our neighbor? And and another one, Kate, since I'll throw this one out for everybody. But to, oh since gosh. Kate likes to throw the grenades in the room, how about Sunday morning services indoors without social distancing? Where do those come into who is my neighbor and how I treat my neighbor? Ironically, I'm so do I'm recording in front of the sewing machine I bought to make masks because <laughs> that we had this shortage and I was sending them to hospitals in Ohio because they they didn't have PPE and so I I did my victory garden thing and I taught myself to sew and I've been mailing masks around but this I think this is a perfect example of where rubber hits the road for Christianity right like when we're asked to do something that is hard or uncomfortable or goes against maybe national ideologies that we have bought into, how do we, you're at, you reach a crossroads and you have to make a choice. You have to say, I don't love these people or I don't love the immunocompromised enough to, even if they're, even if we find out masks don't work, they do but if we found out they didn't wouldn't we still shouldn't we have still taken the chance shouldn't we have still done that thing with the hope that they did under the assumption that they did and i think you have to say i don't love you have to or you should have to say to yourself i don't love these people because i am unwilling to take those steps 
Anybody else want to jump in on that? Masks, social distancing, church services, uh, how do those apply with loving our neighbors? Cindy? Yeah, we know people in in our circles who are very strong on both sides of that debate. And everyone has their reasons for why they believe whatever they believe about the science. Some some people say they don't work. Some people say they do. And and I just think, you know, the the Apostle Paul talked about if it offends my brother to not eat meat, to eat the meat, I'm not going to eat the meat. Not, it's not that if it's a sin to eat the meat. If, if eating the meat is going to mm. there, I'm just not going to do it because it's not worth it's not worth what the damage it's going to do. And I think there's a difference between people saying, "I have my opinion, you have yours," and that's fine. You can have your own opinion, but when, it, we, when on either side, whether you're the person wearing the mask but yelling at the one who doesn't, or if you're the one who refuses to wear the mask and get the police called because you go into a store and they call the police because you won't, whichever side of it you're on. When it reaches a point where you are harming another person, it's time to set your own thoughts aside and just do what's best in that moment. I, in Michigan, and just until recently, it was mandated to wear masks. And now I know that's been overturned you know, by the Supreme Court. But still, we, my husband and I, when we go places we do, we just we feel like if, it's, if there's any chance that we could harm another person, we don't want to take that chance. In our church, we've been wearing them because you know, we have in-person services, socially distanced, but there are getting more people, so we just feel safer. Most people don't. We don't go up to the people not wearing masks and say, what's wrong with you? Do you not care? Do you want me to die? Because that, that's not loving either. So I think no matter what our opinions are, the Christian thing to do is to set your own opinion aside for the sake of the relationship with that person, which is more important than the physical act of wearing the mask. It's the way it affects your relationship with people. And I, and I guess my question for you, Cindy, is can, can you as a Michiganer love somebody from Ohio? That's an interesting question. It actually goes with, I noticed the question, you know, how do you love your neighbor when you have no respect for them? I have respect for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what I was going to say about loving, and I'm going to answer that question about Ohio, but here's the thing about loving people that so many people miss. Just loving somebody does not mean you have to agree with everything they say. It doesn't mean you have to be on their side about anything. Loving people is because they're a person. It's not because they're like you or because they agree with you. I think a lot of Christians are afraid to love because they think that if they're too loving to somewhat whatever group, then people, oh, what if people think I, I like that? What if people think mm. I, I don't want anyone to judge me and think I'm a part of their group, so I can't love them too much. And if we would just realize that's not what love means. Love doesn't mean I have to start doing what you do or living how you live. Or Love doesn't mean I have to become yeah. a guy. I don't have to be a Buckeye. I don't have to love your sports team. <laughs> like. <laughs> Because love, love is an action. Love is not a feeling. Love is That's good. Love is not this. I feel so warm and fuzzy when I look at your Buckeye colors. I don't, but it doesn't mean I love you. I just don't have to feel warm and fuzzy about your sports team. That's, that's awesome. That's a joke, but it, but it applies to so many more serious issues. Yeah, that's but, well. That's a boom moment right just, there. Right. right. The sports that's team a, part is just fun, but yeah. in real life, this whole concept that ooh, I get the creeps when I think about this one thing about you. So what? Love them anyway. That's that's such a great statement that we don't have to agree. Alex, you were going to jump in. Yeah, I think a lot is said about a society by how it treats its most vulnerable. And Mm -hmm. so when people, just the fact that you complain about, protest about not wanting to wear a mask out of your own convenience makes you see how selfish, how arrogant, and how you know, how inconsiderate we are as a nation and a lot. And it's sad because a lot of the people that we see doing this are Christians. So this is the cross that we're carrying or bearing a mask. Please. Yeah, it is uncomfortable at times, but it's not the end of the world. It's we are doing it 
specifically and especially for others, for those that are vulnerable, for those that, you know, have the preconditioned, uh, pre-existing conditions. And we're doing our part. That's the whole thing. And it's interesting because I was right now, um, I'm working and collaborating with an organization here in Sacramento called Area Congregations Together. It's an interfaith organization. And we're working with congregations by giving them or helping them out with mini grants. But specifically, all we're asking is for them to distribute information to keep their congregations safe. And I was reading through the information that we are distributing. And one of the, one of the, the articles was, it, it came from WHO. And they were talking about how Christians are so needed right now and faith leaders because of being pastoral, being compassionate, and how we can use our platform to be compassionate in promoting the procedures that we need to follow. And I'm like, even who is telling you how we should, how we should be behaving. And yet most of the Christians are the ones that are complaining and crying and because we have to wear masks and because we have to social distance and because it's not a lot to do that. And specifically we're doing it because we, if we're going to have a Christ-like attitude, we are going to prioritize the vulnerable the way Jesus did. Yeah. And Cindy was talking about as well, the, if I hang out with those people are going to think I'm like them. Didn't Jesus do that? I mean, and Lauren's just reminded me of this in the chat. It wasn't that, wasn't Jesus marked as a sinner? And, and if we're following Jesus, isn't that part, shouldn't we like be happy if we get classified like that? And it's easy to love people that are like us and that we like, like, that's great. Everyone can do that. It's easy to love the people that we agree with politically right. that are our friends. Like it's hard to love those other people. I like when Cindy said, like it's an action, like you are doing it mm-hmm. to love people who you think actively are harming other people or love people who are unkind or promote policies that you vehemently disagree with that is hard to do and i think as christians we're called to do that hard thing Mm. and consistently throughout the gospels jesus is pushing his followers away from easy paths onto harder ones like whenever someone's oh do i really have to give up all of my stuff to follow you and he's yeah sorry about it like you do like you have to die to yourself every day. And See, that was uncomfortable, you know. <laughs> yeah, and that and, and you're right. And that's not just money, that's anything we use right. to protect ourselves. Right. Charity, did you want to jump in on that? I thought you looked like you were ready to go. <laughs> um, no, I was just I am constantly and Lauren laughs at me all the time because I grew up in a very sheltered evangelical, everything in this bubble is right. Mm -hmm. And he basically helped me break out of that. But I'm still, I wake up and he'll tell me something like he was reading the news or this thing came out. I'm like, wait, that's the church. You're, are you sure that's, are you sure that they're saying that? And even in Wisconsin, our COVID cases are crazy right now just because people don't want to do it. And the church was leading them in that, like mm. in Madison, just, yeah, we're not going to do it. And we're going to do this and we're going to open up and be kind to people who are not wearing their masks because they're in their lane and you're in your lane and just 
I was just like shocked. I just wake up. I'm just shocked every day. And I don't even know. And he's like, why are you still shocked at that? But I think I so much lean on the side of loving. If you ask me to do something for you to protect you or to help you, I'm just going to, yes, I'll do it. And so it's just constantly shocking. And I'm just having to adjust to that because it seems for now, this is going to be the new norm. And it makes my, I don't know, my heart is just breaking for people just on both sides. Like, how can you not, how could you change so I feel like they just even change the way that they love people because they're not, they can't have their way anymore. Mm -hmm. So we're not just going to, we're not going to go there. We're not going to love you anymore because we can't have it our way. Gotcha. So Jody on our Facebook page is talking about the Mayflower pilgrims and Quakers. And she says, our ancestors came to escape persecution from other Christians, not from sinners or anybody else. We we were running from Christians when we came to the U.S., which is an interesting thing. And and so at what point, I think putting our reputation on the line gives us some influence around people. At what point do we throw our bodies in the way? What point do we put ourselves in harm's way for people? And and when I ask that, I, I probably have a little something specifically in mind is when we talk about the church leading the way on these things, many of you may know somebody in sort of some of our traditions of Christendom is doing worship services around the country packed with tons of people, none with masks and declaring it a worship service. And do we say, I don't want to speak out in dishonor, or is there a time where you say, Hey, you are putting people's lives, including my children in danger with this. And when do we put ourselves in the line and say, Hey, that's wrong. Anybody have a thought on that? Again, it's it's how do we do that lovingly? So that's not necessarily my forte. Um, <laughs> hey, Jesus said you're whitewashed tombs. I don't know how loving that was. Like I'm much better at calling that out with anger, which has been my default mode, I think, for the last four years. Not to hint at my political leanings here. I'm sure you guys are all surprised by that. But I think it's a necessary reckoning for Christians in America, right? Like they have sold out against what Kierkegaard called the offense of the cross, like in order to become mainstream, in order to become institutionalized, you have to get past these things that Jesus says that go against that institutionalization. And you're just like, oh, we're just going to put those in this box and not think about them because of power and comfort and all of this stuff and we are now having a reckoning where those chickens are coming home to roost tell me more about that what does that look like what does the reckoning look like maybe i because i I, want to see it i want to see where it is (laughs) (laughs) yeah and i know you guys can speak to this too but i think we are seeing people leaving the church For the first time in a long time, evangelical numbers are going down, particularly among young people. Mm -hmm. We are seeing a backlash from non-Christians on a scale that we have not seen in America for a bit. I think we are, Christians are being questioned about their choices and their viewpoints and being asked uncomfortable questions in a way, on a national stage in a way that I think they have not been in America for quite some time. I think 
Yeah. I believe that the evangelical church has lost its influence. Mm-hmm. The world does not trust the church because of its duplicity, because of its hypocrisy, because of its marriage with politics, its marriage with power, its inconsiderateness, its selfishness, its materialism. We can go on and on. I think Kate said racism earlier, so you can mm-hmm. throw that well, one in. That should have been the first one. <laughs> Most definitely. And I was preaching about this last Sunday about we are the salt of the earth. I've been talking about the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus gave a warning about being the salt of the earth, that if it loses its flavor, it will be cast out and trampled under the feet of men. That is what's happening to the influence of the evangelical church. It's lost its flavor. And right now it's lots of its influence and it's being trampled under the feet. It's sad. It's embarrassing. It's Mm -hmm. embarrassingly sad to see what's happening to the evangelical church and the denial that they're going through, even the deception. It's just, I don't, I don't even know how to describe it, but it's so it's surreal what we're living in our moment, in our day, in this moment. And and isn't that ironic to be happening in a moment where they find like, yes, we have power now and, Mm -hmm. and we have political power and the president loves us. It, it's, it's an yeah, ironic thing. Cindy, you wanted to jump yeah, in. If I, if I could just tag yeah. off what you said, my, my husband was behind the scenes cheering you on when you said that, Alex. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Do this real quick to my. What's that? Fix my, sorry, my computer was being okay. One thing I wanted to add just to tag on to what Alex said is that, you know, Jesus said that we are to be hated, that we will be hated by all men for his sake. And we've spoken with some fellow Christians, good people, meaning people, but I feel like they misunderstand that verse because they're like, oh, yes. we're supposed to hate us. The world's always hated us. And I'm like, oh, hang on a second. Jesus said we're supposed to be hated for his sake. We're not supposed to be hated because we're mean. We're not supposed to be hated because we're nasty. And Kate had brought up a while back that concept of love, love the sinner, hate the sin. And you're right, Kate, that's not in the Bible. I remember, you know, whole life being taught we're supposed to hate sin. I went to this Christian school. They taught me sin is bad, hate sin. Christian college, they taught me hate sin, hate sin. But but I feel like what a lot of Christians miss is I'm supposed to hate my own sin. I'm supposed to hate your sin. I'm not supposed to point at all the other people out there and hate their sin, but like my own sin, that's different. That's mine. Hating sin is supposed to be hating the sin that's inside me. I'm supposed to hate it when I lie. I'm supposed to hate it when I'm cruel or when I'm rude or when I say something mean to somebody or hurt somebody. I'm not supposed to hate it when you do whatever I think you shouldn't do. And I think the reason I hear so many people who think that the world hates us because we're taking a stand against sin and they just don't like it because they want to live in sin and they don't like it when we take a stand, but it's not where they hate us. They hate yeah. us because not right. nice about the way we take a stand against sin and because they see us, they see us judging homosexuality, but we do not judge heterosexual sin within our own ranks. The yeah. same judge homosexuality outside our ranks. And they're looking at us going, how can you judge I don't know if I'm supposed to say names or not, but how can you judge the president several years ago for one incident of infidelity, but now you don't judge other people for repeated? <laughs> why, why, why do you pick and choose who to judge? And the world, <laughs> and that's why they hate us. The hypocrisy right. is, is definitely coming up. And, and you know, I, it, it, oh, go ahead, Alex. Sorry. No, I was just going to say what Cindy's talking about. I had preached about the Sunday before when blessed are those that are persecuted because of yes. Christ's sake, but he also said, Jesus said, because of righteousness, mm-hmm. and in that context, it's a practical righteousness, not this individual, personal, it's a practical righteousness. And in Spanish, we say the word justicia, which is justice. 
It's for the, you're persecuted for the sake of justice, doing justice, being fair to others, seeking equity, seeking all of these things. You are going to be per persecuted because of it. And sadly, you're persecuted by the church. No, anyways. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think we'd have to look at who hated Jesus. The, the world mm -hmm. loved him. It was exactly. the, the people in the church that hated him. And I think if he were here in America today, it would be. Oh, yeah. Very much the same. I, we did get an interesting question from Jennifer that I want to jump into. It, it, she had asked, so if we see somebody walking out this prejudice amongst our brothers and sisters in the church, if I can use that Christian terminology, how do we address that with them? How do we address the way the church is, is doing this? Do you guys have anybody have a thought? They want to jump into that? If only we could hate the sins of injustice in the way that we, we have been taught and trained to hate those interpersonal sins, those obvious sins. So how do we address this with people who we, if we haven't built this neighborly love, if we haven't built up the point that we are ourselves walking in this love and showing it to them, it's really hard to then call them out when they are being jerks. And I think, so much of Christianity is communal and relational. And so it, there's a point where you have to develop that relationship in order to have that discussion. But then there's also a point where the cries of the maligned of those who are seeking justice demand that Christians speak out on their behalf. So I don't know, is well, my answer. And maybe it's the gift of Donald Trump that it has forced a lot of people mm -hmm. to finally speak out. Cindy, I think you wanted to jump in. Yeah, as far as the question was asked, you know, how can I help fellow Christians with this? I don't claim to have all the answers. But one thing I can say is we, all of us are on a journey. Every human is on a journey. And we all got where we are because of where we've been. And I really, having been deep in Christian circles my whole life, I can tell you this with all my heart, the Christian people that I know are some of the most loving, wonderful, God-loving people I've ever known. They're just not perfect. And, and when you meet an evangelical who's hard-nosed about certain things and how they vote and all those things, 90% of the time, I would try to give them the benefit of the doubt and assume that they don't realize, they don't do that on purpose. They're not looking to be hurtful. They're not trying to be racist. They're not trying to be homophobic. They're just <clears throat> what they're taught and they're doing what they think. They, they do it in good faith. A lot of them do. And I think if we can try to understand where they're coming from and try to realize they, they need to learn to. I'm just going to be honest with you. I was very judgmental. If you had known me 10 years ago, I was a very judgmental. <laughs> Been there, yeah. It took, it took um, I was, you know, I, I would never do that type of person. And it took a lot of things I had to go through. And the influence of my husband was very powerful. And just like you, Charity, my husband enlightened me on some things. I just came from a different world and taught me how to see people differently. And just realize people can change. Just because they're admin and they got that big Trump sign in their front yard and they're waving that flag and thinking they're a great American don't assume they have evil intent. They, be, they probably don't. Just try to talk with them and try to reason with them. Ask a lot of questions. So why, why do you feel that way? Why do you feel that those immigrants are so horrible? Have you, have you met one? Have you talked to them? Try to engage them and talk with them and allow them time yeah. to reconsider and learn. Anybody else want to jump in on that? In, in my experience, because through the years, I've had to deal a lot with having to also explain myself. 
why do you post what you post? Why do you say what you say? And even to the point of I've been judged so much as someone that wants to divide and somebody that, you know, and honestly, I'm just trying to shed light to the injustices that are going on and not trying to stir things up just because I want to stir things up. It's because (laughs) there is truly injustice in this world. And another thing too, is that I always got this. Why do you want to, all you you can't solve all the problems of the world, but that is our mandate to set the captives free. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. You anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Anyway, that's our mission. And, but when I've had a deal with the situation, even within closer circles, family circles, friends, and people that I've engaged in these conversations, First and foremost, I like, I I think, Cindy, you talked about asking questions is really reflecting, helping them to see and reflect. Why do you believe that? Where did you hear that? Where did that originate? Because I know the way I used to believe, too. I was a staunch Republican conservative, judgmental. I was super conservative. And it was through the years, people started planting seeds. And that was the whole thing, seeds of truth. Uh, It wasn't just one person. It just started happening. And also my personal experience started opening my eyes. And I do believe the same way, just the way I was liberated. I believe people can be liberated from the deception. And but it does take, you know, time and it's not something that's going to happen overnight. And so usually I tend to see if this is going to be a long term thing, is it going to be worth the investment? That's one thing. If it's just going to be one of those Facebook comments or one of those, sometimes I don't even want to continue to engage because it's not worth it. So you got to pick and choose, I think. And on top of that, you got to see also if the person is a person that is willing to listen. If it's a person that's just not going to listen, it's not worth it. It's not worth your time, your effort. And on top of that, your peace. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Stuff, guys, we're running out of time here. So panel, awesome job. Thanks for being a part of this tonight. And for me, I would say... Uh, A couple of years ago, I I read Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham jail and read his text about, I'm most disappointed in the white moderates. And that struck me. I I thought I was honoring people by not speaking out, but I realized I was actually not honoring God by being quiet. And so I think there is, is a time for us to speak out. In Jonah chapter four, God said to Jonah, do you do well to feel this way? And so I think that's a very honest, true question for us to ask one another. Do you do well to feel this way? And when you look at Jonah saying, I would rather be dead than live in a world where you have mercy on these people, God, can we see ourselves in that story and say, maybe I'm not very happy for God having mercy on those people and and start to reckon that. So that's the question I would challenge everybody with and finish with one quote. And I don't know who made this quote originally because it's argued, but I know Dwight Eisenhower once said it, and that is, America's great because she's good. And when she ceases to be good, she will no longer be great. And so when we think about things like caging immigrants on the border and and the other things we do, is that taking away our base goodness? And then does that take away any claim we have of greatness if we have any claim on that left? So I'll leave you with that pontification tonight. Again, thanks, panel. Thanks to our uh, friends at uh, Intersecting Faith and Politics, Vote Common Good, and the Nonpartisan Evangelical. To all of you who commented, asked questions, and hang out with us, we will be here next Tuesday. We do this all the way up to election, and next week we're going to talk about should we elect people and expect them to have ethics and morals? 
That'll be an interesting discussion for next Tuesday. Hope you'll join us then 6 o'clock Pacific time, 8 o'clock Central, and you can calculate all the rest. So good night, everybody. Be well. Get out and vote and get out and vote now so that we can have this thing settled as quickly as possible after election night. And don't shoot anybody over it, okay? (laughs) 